Today, we are here with Chairwoman and CSULB Professor Heidi Lucero from the Juaneño Band of Mission Indians, Ahachiman Nation. She is a culturist, cultural artist, a basket weaver, tattoo practitioner, native food revivalist, and a steward of the land. Today, we are going to be discussing traditional ecological knowledge and cultural burning as a means to restore and heal the land. So just to set the scene here, uh, we're going to have a land acknowledgement coming from Heidi. Okay, so the Wanenyo Band of Mission Indians are the original inhabitants of what is now Orange County. This acknowledgement was confirmed on August, 9th, August 19th, 1993 by the state of California in Assembly Joint Resolution number 48 and on March 7th, 2006, by Orange County Resolution number 06-028. We are and continue to be the stewards of this land from time immemorial. We are currently gathered here in the village of Povungna or Cal State Long Beach. The Ahashiman territory um, extends from the Pacific Ocean to the west, including Catalina, Pimu, um, San Nicolas and San Clemente Islands to parts of Los Angeles, to the north, including the village of Pavungna at Cal State Long Beach, to Riverside parts of Riverside County to the east and parts of Camp Pendleton to the south, including the villages of Ponhe and Ushme. Our Ahashiman ancestors and their descendants provided the original manpower for the construction of some of the earliest key landmarks in Orange County including the Mission San Juan Capistrano. Many of our ancestors have played key roles in the development of Orange County and the legacy that it brings to all of us. Thank you very much. And yeah, just a, a clarification, that was something that uh, cleared up a, a little bit of a dispute between the Gabrielino Tongvas and the Ahashmans. Um, but yeah, we're here now and we're going to talk about stewardship of the land. Right. What that means, uh, how fire applies to the situation and the gifts that it brings. Right. So fire has been something that has been traditionally used by Native people throughout California to help take care of the land, um, to um, bring um, animals in. To, they um, would come closer to villages when we would burn. They would have new shoots. So. Um, animals like deer would come closer to our villages so we wouldn't have to go hunt um, really far out. So it was something that historically we used. When colonization occurred, people would um, that were coming in, the Spanish, they didn't understand our use of fire. And so they see fire as something bad. They saw it as we were destroying the land. Um, but we were using it to help reduce fuels and the you know on um, that were created um, on a yearly basis, and to help prevent catastrophic fires. So when you have those little small fires, um, it was preventing huge fires that would burn up into the canopy. Right. Yeah. So that's the that's the big problem we have with the mega fires in the past five or so years in California. The treetops are burning, opposed to the underbrush. Right. Fires in the underbrush, very effective, um, actually helpful to the environment, allows you to move freely. Um, it provides fer fertility to the soil. Yep, and new, absolutely. New growth. So a lot of that is um, when you have small fires and it burns the lower fuel layers, um, it's burning a lot of the um, plants that um, have been overgrown. Um, so you want to burn them regularly so that they don't get out of control. When the fuels get really high um, and those unwanted plants um, or the overgrowth gets too big, that's when the fire, instead of just burning um, what's called a cool fire, where you would have it burn um, just uh, a quick burn, burn just that lower small layer of fuel. When you have fuel that's really dense, um, it burns um, longer and hotter and it goes deeper into the, um, the soil. So it, it burns way into the roots of, of trees and um, the bushes that you want to keep. 
um, when um, and it goes way up into the canopy, so it ends up burning um, lots of um, of the trees. Um, and <clears throat> when you have a cool burn, most the trees usually last. They it's a quick burn. It burns the lower layers of fuel, and the trees live. And it actually puts nitrates from burning um, the ash into the ground, and it's good um, for the soil and for new growth. Um, but when you have these catastrophic fires, it just burns everything. It destroys the roots. It, it destroys the trees all the way up into the canopy. Right. And um, the was it the state of California? Was it a national thing where they they outlawed uh, the cultural burns? Was that the 1930s? Or? I'm not sure what year it was, but it was. I mean, it's something that's being suppressed. Um, has been suppressed for years and years um, since colonization. Um, came about and they didn't want us burning um, and it's been very detrimental to um, to native communities who um, used burning as a way of life um, to help produce better um, things like better acorns or better basket materials um, or better other types of food that um, need the burn um, to open the seeds. So a lot of times burning was also a way to um, help propagate um, different plants. Um, they, the shell of a seed, um, some of them need fire to open. So um, that was another purpose of burning was to um, help facilitate the opening of those um, seed pods to, so that they can germinate. Um, when you don't have fire, when you suppress fire, you end up not having those new plants growing. Mm. And that's something that is necessary for uh, a chaparral. Chaparral is a plant and it's an, it's an ecosystem that's unique to this area and around the Mediterranean. Right. And so without any, any controlled burns, I mean, think about Southern California. We do, there was, I think there was a fire in like the Mount Wilson area mm -hmm. a little while ago. Um, there was one out by Hemet. I believe in this fire season, yeah. but still like not enough to really um, have the effect that it, it, it should. Right. Um, fires. So when we did cultural burns, it wasn't like we just set the whole the whole forest on fire. They were set intentionally in certain areas. Um, and that's the difference than what we see now is that um, these fires are so catastrophic. They burn whole, you know, um, territories. And you don't see, and they are so hot, you don't see the regrowth that we'd like to see. Um, I, last year during COVID, I did a cultural burn <clears throat> in my traditional area. And the results of that burn were within three or four weeks are amazing. Um, the, our, it was in our traditional basket area where we um, gather basket plants regularly. It hadn't had a burn in years and years because of the regulations which we can discuss about all the regulations here in california yeah we'll get into that in but a we sure. actually um did the burn we were able to do it um there was a quite a few of us that were uh, <clears throat> basket weavers that went out and um cultural practitioners um and we cleaned up it was a three-day event where we the first couple of days we went out and we um, spoke with the fire department. Um, it was Cal Fire, Forestry, Hot Shots. So it was a big collaboration of um, fire um, personnel that were there. And we told them what areas we wanted to burn. We kind of explained to them why, what the importance of it was to us culturally. And then um, the second day we went out with them and we were cutting down areas that um, of certain trees like the elderberry that was there um, to um, help it regenerate because it was in really bad shape. Um, so it looked like some pieces had fallen like in a storm and so it, they were just hanging there kind of dangerous. So we talked to them about removing it so they came out and they cut things and you know helped us out. And um, Now did they just as a disclaimer, I, I, she's my teacher. I take a class <laughs> with Heidi Lucero. Um, and we learned about the proper way to, to tend an elderberry bush. Right. Did you instruct uh, your help on how to? We did. And we actually instructed them on. Um, so this elderberry has been there as long as I know. I've been a weaver for over 20 years. 
And so it's been there and it's never been um, cut back. So it was really bad. Like you couldn't get within like five feet to the base of the tree because it was so full of leaf litter and um, sticks and all kinds of stuff. So um, we explained to them, so you're not getting um, those new shoots. So um, the elderberry tree is something that we use for, um, it's uh, got multi-uses. So we use um, the flowers are um, a fever reducer, the berries are um, to help during your cold season. Um, they, um, it's like a cough suppressant. It um, helps boost your immune system. Um, and then um, the sticks, um, that the new shoots of the sticks come up. When they come up, we used to use those to make our traditional clapper stick, for, which is what we use for music, and you can make flutes out of them. Um, and so it wasn't getting those new shoots. It was, there wasn't this new growth that you should be seeing. Um, there wasn't um, an abundance of berries like there should be. And so what we did was um, we cut it back really far, we cleaned the base of it, made sure that it was able to get good water supply when it rained. And so within um, this year cycle, it has been, it's produced so much, it's um, so much happier. Um, it doesn't have all the leaf litter. We actually burned the base of it. Um, the base of it is actually surrounded with juncus, which is one of the plants we use for basket weaving. And so we weren't able to get close enough to get some of the shoots. So now that all that leaf litter is gone and the debris, we're able to actually um, have really great straight pieces of juncus where we're able to actually access them. And um, so it was amazing when we went out um, this year we went out to do um, uh, the mustard abatement. So we do a lot of that as well, the removal of invasive plants. Um, so what we noticed was that there was so much new growth um, on the elderberry tree and the juncus. And then there were plants that we haven't seen there in a long time um, that due to fire um, are all of a sudden um, coming to life there. Mm. Um, and one of those is um, the um, the nightshade, which nightshade is one of the plants that we used to use for tattooing. Mm. So I had actually never seen um, in person live nightshade. I'd only seen it in photographs. And so um, it was really amazing to be out there and to be a tattoo practitioner um, of traditional tattooing and to see the plants that our ancestors used to tattooing. It was really amazing. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah so yeah. how do you control a fire? Um, we don't control a fire. Well, we don't now. Um, actually, <laughs> fire is controlled by um, the fire um, organization. So it's whether it's hot shots, you know, Cal Fire, um, forestry. Um, and it really is a group effort. Um, and they did an amazing job at being there. You know, this is not just a relationship that they called and they said, you know, or emailed and said, hey, you know, we're going to do a cultural burn. This is something that um, this relationship between um, this was in the Cleveland National Forest. So between the Cleveland National Forest and the tribe that we have a relationship where we that we've been working on for years and years. Um, they um, bring us out, they give us gathering passes, traditional passes to be out, um, able to go out and gather. So having a cultural burn, um, they, um, it's a relationship that it's a give and take, you know, relationship. So we were out there teaching them and they were out there teaching us as well. Um, and so we showed um, them what we needed. We explained to them what they were used for. And so, there was about, um, I think there was about five different fire trucks there. Um, there was probably about 40 um, firefighters out there helping us. So they surround the whole fire. They have people that are there with their hoses to um, make sure that nothing gets out of control. Um, they have people out there that are actually lighting the fire and going around um, the perimeter and making sure that the fire is moving inwards to a central area instead of outwards out of control. Right, yeah. Um, and so <laughs> they, uh, you know, it was really uh, a great time. We had, I mean, it was fun. We, you know, would sit out there and eat lunch together and, you know, hang out. And um, I, um, I'm kind of like, I 
a boss, you know, you know, in like, you know, in general. And so when I got there the day we were actually doing the burn. Yeah. Well, (laughs) (laughs) um, the day we were doing the burn, I went out there and I'm like, no, you guys need to cut this, you know, because they had missed a piece of the elderberry. Um, And, you know. So and they were laughing at me because they're like, you just jumped in there with all of those firefighters and was telling them what to do. Um, But, you know, this is something, you know, these plants are um, plants that, um, you know, we talk about in class is that they I build a relationship with these plants, um, whether they're basket plants, um, food plants, medicine plants. um, It's something that my whole life is built around um, these relationships and understanding the importance not only to the native people here in California, but um, to the ecosystem here in California. Um, Because when you destroy, um, you know, one key species in an ecosystem, it affects everything. And so um, that's why I'm, I do what I do is to make sure that those ecosystems and those plants that were important, that are important to our native people um, are going to be here for generations to come so that people like my grandson and you know my great grandchildren are going to be able to enjoy them as well yeah i'm actually that's that's a really cool reminder um so we watched watched a movie in class and they spoke about um uh solar energy farms Mm -hmm. and there's an analogy that or a metaphor kind of thing that I wanted to bring up too, where uh, a, a older gentleman from, I believe he was in the foothills over by, um, I think it was a mono, uh-huh. um, and he he was saying that it's like a, a house, and if nobody lives in the house for a long time, I'm paraphrasing, yeah, the house will be ruined, it'll, right? It'll, it'll be destroyed, and uh, there's a balance. So so like between. Um, Native American practices and this uh, big push for alternative forms of energy and kind of like a, a Western bullheaded approach to um, saving the environment, cleaning up the sky, lowering carbon emissions and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, maybe you can paint a little bit of a picture for that. So when it comes to um, alternative forms of energy, you know, I'm not um, opposed to them, but when we're talking about things like solar, you know, or um, electric vehicles, you know, we really have to not just look at that immediate impact. I mean, what did it take to create those solar panels? How long do they last? What is the breakdown of those? Um, What energy was expensed to actually create that electric vehicle, um, you know, or, you know, I mean, we're talking about having electric vehicles here in California um, in the very near future, not having any, um, you know, fossil fuel vehicles. Um, which sounds good. Which, yeah, in theory, it sounds good. But sounds cool. two weeks ago, we were having rolling blackouts and everyone was told not to charge their vehicles, you know. And so, you know, how what does that do to um, the people here? Um, you know, we don't. I mean, even myself, who has done some research on electric vehicles and alternative forms of energy, what is the impact on the environment of producing all of those solar panels? Um, the lifespan of a solar panel, like out in the desert, is less than 10 years. What happens to all of that when they take all of those out and they replace all of those? I mean, is it really beneficial? You know, I, I just, there's some, I have a lot of question marks when it comes to that. Um, even, um, you know, this whole idea of burning kind of to go back to that. Um, when we talk about a burn, there's so many regulations, um, and the regulations, um, sometimes I don't see that there's a huge benefit to those, to controlling controlled or cultural burns. Um, because if you don't have the burns, then you have catastrophic fires right, totally. that burn for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, mm-hmm. um, you know, that take that long to actually get under control. So one of the things during a burn is um, the, um, the air quality. Um, I completely understand things like the wind or um, the moisture in the air, the moisture in the soil. Um, but 
air quality is always going to be questionable, especially when you have a fire season that we don't have a fire season anymore. Fire season is all year long. It could happen at any Yeah, point. we yeah. used to have a fire season, and we no longer have just a season of fires. I mean, even think about our most recent rain. Like, that was, it yeah. was 100 degrees, and then a hur- we got a, tr- a hurricane that turned into a tropical Tro- storm mm-hmm. that allowed us to get rain. That's not, like, normal. Right. That's kind of a scary situation where we're... And it doesn't seem like many people are in panic about, I mean, not like we should panic, nobody panic, but (laughs) not paying as much attention to like how odd that is for this area. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I consider um, when I think about things like that. I'm like, we have, um, you know, we had a 10 year plan here or 25 year plan. I think it was 25 year plan that we are going to build 25,000 more homes here in Southern California. where, for one, where are we going to put those? What's going to happen to our natural environment here um, if we're uh, building 25,000 more homes in Southern California? Two is we don't have the energy, um, you know, reserves to actually provide energy for 25,000 more homes. Yeah, because I saw something in the Washington Post where we were produ- like at that period that you were talking about where we had to, they, you know, the heat wave and stuff. They were, you know, obviously it's so sunny. We're getting a bunch of power from these solar panels, but we don't have a proper storage place for all of this stuff. So it's, it's tough. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. And then um, where does the water from for Southern California come from? Well, uh, all over. There is some groundwater we use. Yeah. There is no, some ground. Not much, not but much, most but of it comes. It, yeah, yeah. The Colorado, San Joaquin, yep. uh, California aqueduct. Yeah, and that is another problem. We don't have enough water supply for 25,000 more homes. You know, if we're talking about 25,000 more homes, talking about having, um, you know, four occupants per home, how many people is that that we have to now provide for? Um, not in, to in mention, a humane way. Right. You know, when it's 100 degrees out, there's four people living. Are gonna Is there going to be an air conditioning provided for that house? And right. And not to mention the waste that comes from 25,000 more homes and the four people per home. You know, it's just, you know, and our governor, I'm not going <laughs> to, we're not going to go there. But we're, they're talking, I mean, he's advertising outside of the state for people to come to California. Oh. And so, um, you know, I just, I didn't know that. yeah. And I just think that, you know, we don't have the occupancy to have and or the resources to sustain that many people specifically here in Southern California. Actually, you know what? Now that I think about it, that was like an ad he ran in Florida or something yeah. like that, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, you're, you're right. And I guess, I guess like in, in like just to be played like a double sided thing, like, I think a lot of these homes are meant for like the homeless population, um, which is something that is. Yeah, it's there. Is a lot of them are LA. for low income. OK. Um, but, you know, we just still don't have the ability to sustain that. You know, our environment doesn't have the ability to sustain that. Right. And something that like people f- that are just wholly from Southern California don't realize that we get so much pull from the state because of our population compared to the rest of it that it's really imbalanced. Like we have this like idea like, oh yeah, we can have a ton of people come here. It's all great. And there's a bunch of jobs and money, blah, 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 blah. But the rest of the state is looking at us like, okay, we're selling you water. You know, like you're taking a lot of these resources from other places. Yeah. And we used to get water from up in Northern California. You know, and we talk about this in class about always, you know, Native communities are always seeking this type of balance. <clears throat> I've been, I mean, I've traveled all through over out California, you know, since I was a kid. Um, you know, I like to fish, I like to hunt. And I used to go fishing up in Northern California and the, the lakes were so completely full with water. Um, but now you go up there and I mean, they're puddles compared to what they used to be. Some of them used to go all the way up to the road. You could th- see the lake. And now you have to drive five miles back to even see the lake. Yeah. No, even it's, Lake Shasta. Lake Shasta is just is a perfect example of, um, you know, a lake being almost dried out. 
you know, at Lake Mead as well, where we get water from, or we used to. I mean, they're, I mean, the water is so low that they're finding things, you know, in the dirt there, you know, mm. or in the mud. Yeah. <clears throat> so. Yeah, and that's like a, um, the Lake Mead thing is like a positive feedback loop. There's so much silt being built up. Right. The, the lake is drying out in the first place. Less glacier, glacier runoff, um, or just less smaller glaciers in the yeah. Rockies and stuff. So. Yeah, if the snowpack it's, doesn't last as long as it used to. No, yeah. not at all. No. Um, yeah, so that's tough. But um, let's get back to um, stewardship of the land. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's let's kind of, like, define what that means. Okay. Because I, I actually, like, kind of tried to say this in class, but it didn't, I don't think it came out the right way. So when, when people farm and even garden, you try to imitate where that plant naturally grows and that's kind of like an idea we have of farming and sustainability how can we imitate natural environments right so but But farming really is do you really think that that farming is imitating real life where those plants it's it's like as much as a drug made in the lab is 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 imitating something that they got from like nature as much as that so like they want to give it the right nutrients they want to have it in generally the right uh, temperature range, right. but it's, they're taking it completely out of where it should be grown. Right. So, that, yeah. And so, so when we're talking about, um, stewardship of the land, we're, we're speaking more about actually going and keeping the house. Living yeah. In the house. So we're actually going to where that plant actually lives. We're not taking it out and trying to imitate another environment for it. Um, you know, I wouldn't go to Northern California and take a plant that grows in Northern California and try and bring it down here to Southern California, a completely different environment, and try to grow it here and expect it to actually um, produce plentifully here. You know, um, we go out into nature and we take care of those plants that are already growing there. Plants, especially plants that we know where that our ancestors were there, um, things that are important to us culturally, um, things like the acorn, um, the holly leaf cherry, the choke cherry, you know, um, the the chia, you know, the all the basket plants, the basket bush, the rust trilobata, the deer grass, all of these plants we typically go out into the environment and um, take care of them there. Um, But because of things like uh, urban sprawl, um, it's getting, um, it's less likely we're gonna actually find those because they're destroying that land um, for building all these new houses. Um, And so we're at a point now where we are not encouraging people to actually go out into the, the environment and um, harvest from nature. We're asking people to go somewhere like a native plant nursery. Um, Take those plants, you know, get them from the native plant nursery. Most of them are cultivated from seeds gathered in the local area. So um, take those and plant them at your house. You know, specifically if you're here in Southern California, this is the environment for those plants. So they're going to grow well. You don't um, have to go out into nature where the resources are getting limited um, and gather from there. Um, you can go out and take care of those so that there are still things in nature that are growing, those plants. But we want to go out there and steward them, take care of them, copus and cut back, go out there and um, you know, create a relationship with these plants, uh, make sure that they're doing good, make sure they're getting what they need. Um, if, <clears throat> if we're in a drought season, um, go out and give some of those plants water um, or go back and, you know, clear the debris, you know, advocate for these plants to have a cultural burn so that, you know, that's another way to take care of them and to steward them. Um, like you've seen in many of the videos that we've seen in class is that um, you need to um, cut things back so that you can have straight shoots. So it's um, when we do go out there, there are certain plants that we don't have um, that you can't really grow at your home. Um, So when you 
um, go out to actually gather, um, you want to make sure that you're cleaning up the area, coping. Um, you know, we go out there. Sometimes we don't get go out and gather. We go out there to just clean up and take care of it. And um, so in return, when we do go out together, we have nice straight shoots. Um, we only gather what we need. Um, sometimes, sometimes I go gather and I'm not gathering for me. I'm gathering for an elder. Um, so I'll gather for that elder that can't actually physically get out there. Um, and for me, that's giving back to that plant too, is that, you know, when I go out there, I talk to the plants, you know, I let them know what I'm there for, you know, I'm here for my auntie to, you know, get this because, you know, or my, you know, basket weaving friend, Tima, she needs these because she's, you know, making a hat for somebody um, and she can't get out here. And so, you know, it's creating this relationship and, um, you know, we talk to the plants in our language. We, you know, like our ancestors did, we um, sing to them, you know, and it's about creating this relationship with plants. Um, and that is all part of stewardship of the land. Um, and because we have to work with agencies or private landholders, um, creating relationships with those individuals to be able to steward the land is all part of stewardship as well. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so spreading the word a little bit, but also just, um, yeah. Uh, keeping the practices tra as traditional as possible. Right. And I know when I noticed when I said um, something about um, a gathering pass, you kind of made it like you were like not understanding what that is. Yeah. What is that? So a gathering pass is something that <clears throat> when you go on to public lands, like, um, whether it's forestry or national forest, um, it's a pass. So tr normally you couldn't go into a um, any of these public lands and like gather anything. Common term used is leave no trace. Yeah, leave no trace, leave no trace. or you know, um, you're not allowed to take anything from there, you know? Um, and so because we have a relationship, they know that we are the indigenous people of the land um, and that we come in a good way, we come and steward that land. We've created this relationship where they give us a pass every year. Um, and so if we're out there gathering, um, we can just show our pass to, you know, if it's a ranger or even an individual that's like, what are you doing? You know, we show them that we have a pass that we, you know, we talk to them about what we're doing there, why we're gathering. And that's another way for us to spread the word about what we're doing. Um, I had been out gathering for over 20 years in this particular place, and I had never been questioned by a ranger or anything. And it was really funny because in one day I got questioned by two different rangers. <laughs> and so, um, but, you know, they were, they were really happy to see that we were out there. He said, you know, I'd heard that you guys come out here and gather, but I had never seen anybody. And so to be out there and to be able to even talk with him, you know, about it um, was, you know, really great. And, um, you know, we ended up doing um, workshops with them so that their people understand why we're gathering certain plants. Um, and so now they kind of they're on the, out, the lookout for us. So, because um, we're always looking for um, places to gather that our ancestors were, you know, and some of them are like way off the um, paved road and they have dirt roads all over. And so sometimes they'll see something and they'll call us or send us a picture or ask us, you know, what it is. Um, and if it's something that we're looking for, you know, so. That's super cool. It, yeah, it's super cool. It's a great yeah. relationship that's been developed. It was actually started by my aunt, Marion Walking Stick. Um, she started this relationship with one of my cousins, um, you know, when I was just a kid. And so they were, they worked on it. And so um, when she was done, she passed the torch to me. So I've been doing that with the forestry service. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah I mean, most forestry people I've, I've talked to and whatever, they're, Real cool people. Yeah, they're real yeah. cool people. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're trying to take care of the land um, as best they can. Yeah. You know, and they're open for suggestions. Yeah, and we're it's always cool. kind of trying to help them understand um, our relationship because it is very different than their relationship. Mm. Um, but it's nice they have they have a whole 
list of resources, individuals, you know, botanists, uh, you know, archaeologists, anthropologists, you know, um, geologists that are out there that kind of help us do things, you know. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then and this kind of like reminds me of of sage. Oh, yeah. This is like the blending of uh, traditional and modern Western. Modern or Western. Modern or Western knowledge. Yeah. Um, uh, just before I forget, what's a good uh, native plant nursery? Um, tree of Life. Tree of Life. Uh huh. Okay. And um, if you're, and that is in Orange County on Ortega Highway, and if you're in the LA area, it would be Theodore Payne, and that is a great one as well. Um, and we advocate for getting seeds from them, starting, you know, from kind of like what you guys are going to be doing for your botanical ally project is that you're building a relationship. And so when you get something from seeds or a seedling, something that's small, um, you can um, start building that relationship with that plant. Mm, Very cool. By the way, this is 22 West Dialogue with Daniel. So earlier you were talking about the importance of having straight shoots. What's uh, what's the deal? What's so important about having a straight shoot? So when you're making a basket, you don't want a curvy shoot. You want something that's nice and straight that you can kind of form yourself to your basket shape. So um, that's why we want straight shoots. Okay. And um, this is this is an area of expertise for you. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I'm a basket weaver. Um. And it is definitely a labor of love. Um. A lot of people don't understand. You know, they think it's just. It's just a basket, you know, but for us, it's not like we can, um, you know, go down to Michael's or something and buy the materials. Everything that goes into a traditional basket is something that we gathered, harvested and tended those plants to make sure that they are of good quality um, to put into the basket that we're weaving. And um, those things come with lots of prayer. Um, when we make it, not only when we make the basket, but when we're out there gathering the materials, when we're out there tending all those plants and taking care of them, um, it comes with lots of prayers. And so um, it's not simply just a basket. It comes with um, thousands of years worth of knowledge that is passed down from one ancestor to another or, and one relative to another um, through oral tradition, which is something else we've been talking about in class. And the same thing, um, you know, we have very few um, things that are written, you know, written knowledge. So some of our best um, storytellers um, are sitting in museums right now. So as a basket weaver, and as a tattoo artist, um, those are the places that we go to learn. Um, and those are the remnants that our ancestors have left for us to learn from. Um, you know, in class, we were talking about things like um, uh, pictograph and um, petroglyphs as being um, part of our written language. Well, basketry is something, um, the baskets that are left that were collected Um, that are sitting in museums throughout the world, specifically from Southern California, those are our teachers. Hmm. Um, We can go and learn um, patterns, different Hmm. designs on baskets. Um, We can learn how a basket is started, what materials were used in those baskets, um, how they started a new piece of um, um, new weaver. and um, and all of that information comes from looking at baskets, old baskets. So yeah, so that's interesting. So so because it's such an oral tradition, and the physical objects that would be talked about are actually not present. It's kind of different having to show up to a museum with pillars. Yeah, <laughs> and you're walking in and looking through a. a piece of glass to check out a new design or an old design that you can apply today. But just like we make relationships with places like forestry and, you know, um, all those fire departments, we have created relationships with all of the museums um, so that we can actually go in and handle all of those baskets and take pictures. Um, So you can you can hold them. Yeah, we actually can hold them and look at them. And um, they really have a lot of really great technology now that's coming out where they can do 3D imagery imagery of Um. all baskets. So um, 
but it still doesn't replace actually being able to touch and feel those baskets. Right. Um, when we're talking about straight shoots, so one of the things that um, a lot of the tribes did is uh, make cradle boards for our babies. Okay. Um, that is where we need a lot of really straight shoots to make a, a cradle board. Um, the cradle boards here in Southern California um, are a little different than like in the Central Valley. They use something, um, they use the same, one of the same bushes that we do. They call it sourberry mm. um, and we call it rust trilobata or um, sumac. Um, we oh, use sumac, it differently. Okay. Um, we actually peel the bark off of it and use um, the cambium layer of it. Um, they use a whole stick, and that's why they need to be really nice and straight. Uh, is su sumac is edible, right? Are um, they, or there, where have I heard sumac before? There is sumac. There's a sumac berry that is edible, but it's not the same as our sumac. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Sumac is actually related to poison oak. Oh, um, so some people that it's are itchy. allergic to poison oak are allergic to sumac. Okay. Um, it kind of gives them that not as intense of a reaction, but I know people that even if someone is cleaning sumac in the room mm -hmm. and they get an allergic, like their eyes get all swollen. And um, so you have to be careful with that. Oh, uh, yeah. Like poison oak is the oil. If you oh, get the oil on yeah. there, right? It's, uh -huh. it's the same thing with sumac. Yeah, it's very itchy. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Sumac isn't bad. So, I mean, I'm not allergic to it. Um, I didn't know people could be allergic or not allergic to and, poison oak and, and stuff That's yeah some people are and some i've heard i i don't know for per, from personal experience but i know that some people actually um you know have gone out and been in contact with it for years and then all of a sudden they have a, a bad reaction oh. and so um maybe it's a tolerance that they you know they build up and then uh, you know they get overexposed and then they have a reaction and then there's other people hmm. um you know kind of relating to this to fire is when you um, don't clear things like poison oak for yeah. a long time, they get really out of control. And then mm. when you have catastrophic fires, it's burning those oils from the poison oak. And um, those the firefighters that are on the ground breathing those, they a lot of them have um, really bad reactions in mm. the, you know in their lungs from breathing fire the the fire from the poison oak, um, and even just. A couple months ago, I was driving up north and I went for a hike and there is, I mean, the amount of poison oak up there is just incredible. I can't believe it. Mm. Um, even down here, there's places that I used to go gather, but I can't get in there anymore because there's so much poison oak. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. Yeah, I know um, in Northern California as well, due to uh, like, no, like the lack of fire maintenance and uh, logging, a lot of oak woodlands are being overtaken by uh, conifers. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. There's a lot of. Um, I don't want to say you know there is here. There's a big influx of invasive plants, mm. um, and some of them are in waterways, so that prevents a burn. But mm. there's others that we do abatement on, um, which is the Russian thistle, um, the um, mustard. Um, the ones that are in the water is the, um, is that like mustard, like you could buy a mustard leaf from the grocery store. No, it's oh, different. It's different so in the springtime, when you look at the hills, is that stupid? And, no, no, because people <laughs> think it's the same thing. But when you look at the hills, um, if in the springtime and you're like, oh, they're all pretty yellow, that's the mustard. Oh. And when it, it doesn't last very long. And what it leaves is, um, a dry bush that's like kindling in a fire. Oh. And so um, we try to, pre, you know, make sure that we go out um, and uh, do abatement on that every year. Um, we've worked for the last two years with the forestry to do it. Oh, and okay. and we've had some before, but um, specifically myself, um, I've worked with them for the last two years. And we've talked about it lots about getting out there, even a small group to get out and do abatement. Oh, yeah. What, what exactly is your role on the fire council? Um, oh, no, I'm no, I'm doing a, a panel. So I'm doing a, fire panel. A, Sorry, yeah, I'm doing a panel and we're kind of doing similar to what we're doing now. Um, but we have representatives from um, northern, central and southern California talking on this panel about um, fire regimens and the need for cultural burning. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that'll be cool. And so you're meeting with the CDF and this is actually a private organization that's doing it. So um, 
you know, the more we can get out here and talk about the importance of fire, um, I think that um, uh, more likely we are to change the minds of people who um, are controlling these um, having or not having burn cultural burns. Mm. Yeah. And why has California been so hesitant to do cultural burns? Because there are other parts of the country that do them. Absolutely. Like, like the Southeast does it. And yeah. Like, there, I, California, it has to do with the um, the air quality. I think that is the, one of the main concerns. Uh, the AQMD. And, yeah. And so you have to be in a certain range to be able to have your burn. Um, and um, there, I think there's like, I think they said seven criteria. One is um, you have to have the manpower available that day. Mm. Um, you have to have submitted all the permits. You have to have um, the wind speed has to be um, at a certain rate um, or below a certain rate. Um, you have to be able to uh, make sure there's not going to be wind gusts. There has to be a certain amount of uh, humidity in the air, humidity in the soil. Um, so it's all of these things that are required um, before they can actually have it. You know, and sometimes you get out there. Um, Everybody is prepared. You know, they're making sure the last minute tests are done and they're testing the air and the soil quality um, or humidity. And they're like, oh, got to cancel. Oh. And so it's such a bummer when things like that happen. Right. And the and the, the conditions have to, for an area like Southern California, the, the conditions have to be fairly unique for our climate. Right. Where like it does, I'm not sure if it's Redwood National or State Park, but I was just reading... Shouts out to Lost Coast Outpost. I still read you guys up in Humboldt County. But the Bald Hills area, they're going to have burns up there. Right. And they announce it. They let people know, don't freak out about the smoke and stuff. So it does happen. And I'm not sure if that's the National Park or if they're working with the – because I know Wichipec is right next to the Bald Hills area. Okay. And Hoopa's on the other side of that. But right. I, I don't know if they're working with tribes or if it's just like a thing that they – most likely they're working with tribes um that is part of outreach community outreach so they reach out to the tribes um through california so i work with an organization called california indian basket weavers i used to be on their board um yeah shout out to them too yeah yeah we're doing great they're doing great things um with uh, revitalization of traditions with um california indians and so what they do um is They've worked with all of these institutions, um, whether it's forestry, national park, um, to make sure that, um, well, and the Native American Heritage Commission, to make sure that tribal entities are being informed and being part of consultation. Um, you know, in terms of all kind, I mean, all kinds of stuff, whether it's um, cultural burning, um, identification of sites. Um, NAGPRA, which we'll talk about in class, which is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Oh. So, um, or Cal NAGPRA, which is specific to California. So they're, um, they're really good at making sure that um, the native population in California is aware of things that are going on. So um, I'm sure that the native population in, has been informed and is probably involved. Um, specifically because I know that there's a lot of basket weavers up there mm. um, and um, they're really involved in making sure that um, their basket areas and things are taken care of. Um, I'm sure that they're involved. Oh, yeah. And something that's like very different up there is like the Yurok tribe is is a presence. Right. Well, they're the biggest tribe in they, California. Yeah. Like they, they have influence on stuff that goes on. Like one of the most recent things I'm some ridiculously rich dude is trying to build an 8,000 square foot house. And uh, he promised he wouldn't build a road, built the road. Yeah. Promised he wouldn't take down these blackberry brambles. He took them out, took them down and they stopped the construction of this guy's house. Yeah. So stuff like that happens up there, which like down here, you just, it's, it's different. Yeah, it is different. I mean, and you do have your large tribal nations down here that have a lot of power. Um, uh, most of those are, um, they have casino revenue, and that's how mm. they get the money to have that power. Mm. Um, and so, um, and that's part of how we got contacted. So, um, some of those tribes um, are um, a border tribe with us, 
And so we, they make sure that we're involved in consultation too when we're talking about doing cultural burns or anything that's going on in the National Forest. Um, I probably get 15 emails from the National Forest every day hmm. from our local National Forest. Now, has that relationship, I know you said that you, you've had that relationship passed down to you, mm -hmm. but how long has that been a, a fruitful relationship? Oh, probably 30 years. Okay, since yeah. like the, and the so 80s or A lot 90s of times they're, um, they're, whoever's in charge, I mean, the turnover there is really, um, it's quite frequent. We did have a, um, a man named Keith um, in for a long time. So my aunt worked with him quite a bit. My uncle worked with him and then I worked with him briefly and then he retired. Mm. Um, but so now they have new, they do actually have a native liaison that works with the native community. And so they reach out to us. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And that's so awesome. I build a pretty good relationship with the new people that are in. Good. Okay. So let's uh, talk about one more thing that I keep telling myself every weekend I'm going to go check out and I haven't done it yet, <laughs> but you brought it up and it sounds awesome. The Chia Cafe Collective. This isn't about fire or anything, but no, let's just well, actually, a, Chia Cafe since we're is, shouting out, um, we might as well so shout out. So Chia Cafe Collective is actually not a place. What? It's not a place. <laughs> it's a collective of um, indigenous people. There's workshops and stuff. Yeah, we do okay. have a lot of workshops. Um, we have, um, so Chia Cafe is a collective of um, native peoples. Um, it was started by um, Barbara Drake, um, Lori Siskwak, and um, Professor Cindy Alvitre. Um, and is she a professor here? Yeah, Professor okay. Alvitre. Yeah, Cindy Alvitre is a, a professor here. Um, Lori Siskwak is a teacher at Sherman Indian School in Riverside. And Barbara Drake was a, um, a Gabrielino Tongva elder. Hmm. Um, and um, she has she recently passed. Mm. Um, so, you know, we do a lot of things in her name mm. um, because she was one that advocated for Native peoples and for the revival of our traditions. And she's the one that really started the um, whole Chia Cafe Collective um, with an, another Gabrielino Tongva elder, Craig Torres and um, Abe Sanchez. He is um, indigenous Mexican, but he's a an amazing basket weaver. He was one of my teachers. Um, and he's taught a lot of people um, in Southern California how to basket weave. And he is a, um, I like to call him a foodie so, because <laughs> he is everything food. You know, when we travel, everything revolves around food and culture. I'm the same, I, just, I love food, I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah, and so um, he's actually gonna come in and talk in our class. Oh, good. During our food um, unit. Okay. And so um, cool. um, the Chia Cafe started by we were would go out and do demonstrations on native foods, on the revival of native foods. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people think associate native people with things like fry bread. Um, and that is actually not a traditional food. Mm. That delicious, is, but not traditional. Yeah, delicious, but not <laughs> traditional. Um, native food, that was a commodity food. So when... Um, when native people got put on reservations, they got um, food um, supplied to them by the government. They mm. would get like lard, salt, sugar, flour, and those are the things that they made out of those foods. Mm. And so um, they are not traditional foods. Our native foods um, were things like the acorn, the chia seed. Right. Um, we had a high protein diet of you know deer, rabbit, seafood because um, we're right along the coast um, and um, all kinds of roots and greens that we would gather. And the uh, difference between the ingredients that were sent by the government compared to a high protein diet that involves all of these things is substance. Yeah. You, you get full on protein. Yeah, you get full on protein. Sugar but and flour. Yeah. And, and that, this is why we see, you know, when we talk in Chia Cafe is we're talking about um, things that are happening in the native community that you don't see in um, your general populations. We're talking about hypertension. Um, we're talking about, uh, you know, high cholesterol. Um, we're talking about diabetes. And these are all due to what we call the white guys. We call them white sugar, white flour, um, salt, and fat, you know, that um, we're not 
traditionally part of our diet. We went from a very high protein diet um, to something that was um, all kinds of starch, you know, and the, you know, salt and sugar. And, you know, we are, we have become very sedentary. Um, we used to hunt and gather for our food. And um, since colonization and moving native peoples onto reservations, we didn't do that anymore. We weren't allowed mm. to hunt. And so um, Chia Cafe is about reintroducing um, native foods. It started as a native foods. So reintroducing native foods. Um, and what we realized when we first started doing it was um, even native people's palates were not used to those flavors. Oh. Those, you know, we want something either um, super sweet or something super salty mm -hmm. or something that, you know, was high fat. So we had to do when we started, you know, when you introduce something to somebody and they eat it and they don't like it, you know, they're never going to try it again. And so we then we decided that we needed to do something more of a fusion food, you know, where we kind of are slowly introducing them into their diet. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we've done. And it's been really amazing. We came out with a cookbook um, and it. And where can you get the cookbook? The cookbook is called um, Cooking the Native Way um, by the Chia Cafe Collective. And it is or was available on Amazon. Okay. I know that they had to do a new reprint because we had sold out of them. Oh, awesome. And, okay, so check Amazon. Yep. If not, there's a um, – is uh, there a, a Chia Cafe Collective website or is it there just There is. The so we Facebook? have a Facebook page. Yeah, okay, just yeah. on Facebook. And okay. then um, if you don't find it on Amazon, you can also order it from the publisher, um, which is Heyday Books. Um, that's a local um, native um, book publisher. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, the publisher is not native. He's a huge advocate for native communities. He's done all kinds of stuff um, for native communities, but yeah, they have published it for us. Awesome. Yeah. And um, so these workshops, how do you sign up for a workshop? And really like, what, what do you, mm -hmm. what do you talk about? You teach people how to cook and then you yeah. let them eat. They're or... hands on. Most of our workshops are hands on. Um, so we've done things at the, um, what is it called? The Idlewild Arts Academy. Idlewild. Idlewild, yeah. Oh, out in uh, San Jacinto Mountain. Yep. Oh so, yeah, um, been, that's a nice little town. Yeah, it's really nice. So they have an art school there, um, and um, we in the summers we do a workshop there, and every year it rotates. So it's either native foods, um, material culture, which you would be doing, like things like um, clapper stick making or you know tool making things like that, and then we do one that's on native medicine. And so um, that's a place to learn. Um, we do have several workshops and we do talks all over. Um, and um, you guys are gonna be lucky because you're gonna have Abe come and Abe will bring food, I'll bring food. So um, yeah, you guys will get to taste all kinds of stuff. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> and so we do things like we make um, traditional egg corn soup um, we make um, a stinging nettle soup, which um, is something that we like to do. That was one of um, our Barbara Ann, one of our Barbara Ann, one of our um, Barbara Drake's favorite things to make was the stinging nettle soup. Um, and then we do. Um, I make the um, the chia pudding. Um, we do. Um, is that like with the coconut milk and stuff yep. like that? Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> I like that stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's my recipe in the cookbook is the chia pudding recipe. Okay. Um, and, yeah, it's all non-dairy and everything. And so um, – but we do all kinds of recipes. Lori Sisquak is really great at doing all kinds of recipes um, for it. And then all of that stuff is – when we do a workshop, um, like the ones we do at Idlewild, we actually go out and take students out to gather Mm. Um, in the area and then um, we bring them back and they process them. The workshop is two days so we process and then we eat. Yeah, we eat good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and Abe is known for bringing the chapulín, which is the grasshoppers from Mexico. Oh, yeah. Um, and they're all seasoned. They're actually really good. I've um, heard they're good. I just don't like the legs. If nobody told me they were good, I might not try it. But they, I don't like the I legs because really they're kind of like, <laughs> yeah, they're 
yeah, I don't like the legs. So I picked the legs off. Um, What's wrong? Do they just get stuck in your teeth? They don't. And, just like when you, you look in the like, mirror, you're like, oh, I don't. they kind of like stick to you. Like, uh, yeah, I don't like them. Um, but um, but the bodies but are kind of the, nutty. Yeah, they're uh, salty, nutty, kind of garlicky because of the way they roast them. Oh, yeah. um, we do um, quail. We do. Um, Never had quail. I've had quail eggs. Yeah. Which are pretty good. Yeah, I like quail eggs. And they're supposedly like super jam-packed with nutrients and yeah. stuff. Yeah. And then we do um, elderberry flour. Um, we um, actually do, I forget what she called it, but we used to dip the elderberry flowers into this light batter and fry them oh, um, yeah. as a dessert and sprinkle them with powdered sugar. <laughs> so that's that kind of fusion where you're right. not completely, you know, um, traditional. Um, it's an Italian thing to fry the squash flour. Yeah. So it's yeah. like, I'm, a, I'm half Italian, so Me I had too. to throw that in there. I am too. Okay. I'm Italian too, my dad. Um, and then um, what else did we do? I mean, all kinds of fun stuff, you know. Um, and, um, oh, the, the um, yucca flour. Um, we make like a yucca flour stir fry. So we take the yucca flours and blanch all the um, the kind of bitterness out of them. And then mm. we make um, a stir fry out of them. Because those things are showstoppers on the side of a hill. Yeah. Pretty big flowers. And so you, you uh, saute them, so they must be kind of, they must hold up. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yep. And I actually, um, when it's harvest time, um, I'll go and um, harvest a few of them, and then I will um, blanch all that um, bitterness out of it because it, um, it's almost like soap. So if mm. you take the leaf and... Um, you boil it and you can rub it together. It makes kind of a uh, bubbles like soap. Hmm. Um, so you have to make sure you kind of wash all of that out. Otherwise, it's really bitter. Huh. Um, so, and I'll do that and then I will. Can you use it as soap? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, and so you can, um, that's another one of those plants that everything is usable. Hmm. Um, and so I'll take those and then I will um, vacuum seal them and freeze them hmm. so that I can have them throughout the year. That's smart. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's another plant. So you can use the flowers. You can eat the stock. Um, we can use the stock for like multiple purposes. And the root is actually, so we use the, um, the base leaves. Um, they're like really serrated like a knife, but you can, we use those for basketry um, to start the start of our basket to, or to make cordage. Like the and fibers on the inside. Yeah, fibers, yeah. Okay, yeah. And then the... Um, so if you haven't seen a yucca plant before, it's kind of like an agave. It's yeah. like a... Yeah, yep. sorry, go ahead. And so then we use the root. You can eat the root. You can uh, roast the root and eat the root as well. Mm. So the whole plant is useful. Yeah, you can. I think I've seen like yucca flour and stuff. And Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yep. Like I'm pretty sure I've had chips that yeah. are made with yucca flour. <laughs> Probably, and yeah. Cassava and flour. And yeah, and like those that. are yeah. different different species of the, the same plant that are very similar. Oh, yeah. 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 I think siete, the dip chips, those are delicious. Yeah. If you haven't had them, try them. <laughs> I haven't had those. Yeah, yeah I'll have to good. try them. And then out <laughs> at um, Morongo, they have, they do do the agave. So they, um, um, one of um, uh, our friends, Daniel, he used to work with Chia Cafe, um, Jan Daniel McCarthy. Um, he um, recently passed as well. And so he, um, he used to every year go out and do the agave harvest. So they would go out and they would uh, um, harvest agave root and then they would roast it in a pit, uh, you know, an earth pit and they would roast it and they have a whole festival about uh, for the agave harvest. No kidding. Yeah. So. so do you just like start, dig a hole, start a fire, dump the embers in, in the hole? I was How never you... there when they started it, but it was uh, <laughs> so good. It was amazing. I love to try it. Yeah. So, um. <laughs> And it's a fundraiser. So at the Malky Museum at uh, Morongo, oh. they do. Um, and that's another place to look for events. If you're interested in, you know, being involved and in kind of learning about Southern California native culture, that is a great place. They do event cultural events there all the time. Mm. Yeah. Now, is Morongo, uh, is there space uh, uh does it go over to the idlewild area or what um, um tribe is re yeah represents so that's a koya no that's koya 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 territory okay. yeah awesome yeah so and cool. they're amazing they have events at the museum and they do events out there all the time nice nice yeah. um yeah, it looks like we're running a little little over an hour here uh, is there anything else you want to tie a bow on this? No, I think with? this is great. Yeah. I'm hoping to, you know, spread the information that 
native Californians are here. We're actually, you know, practicing and, you know, our culture and our traditions. Um, and, um, you know, we're always welcome to have individuals come out and learn from us and, you know, especially about tending the land and taking care of the land the way the native people did because we did it so successfully for hundreds of thousands of years um, before colonization occurred. Mm. Awesome. Um, yeah, so check out Chia Cafe Collective. When's your next workshop? Um, we're actually speaking up at the California Native Plant Society in San Jose um, in October. So I think they're going to stream it live as well or something. So Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll try to keep you updated, 22 West listeners. 